Well, as Dan said at the beginning, uh, we are in this series uh, called Explore God, and we're joining together with over 800 other churches here in the Chicago area who are wrestling through what it means to serve and what it means to answer these big questions in our lives. And last week, Tony helped us wrestle with this question, does life have a purpose? And we found out that the answer to that depends on one thing. It it depends on whether you believe there's a God, because without God, there is no purpose in life. But with God, there is purpose and meaning. Life does have purpose. And so, of course, the next question is, well, is there a God? Watch this. Let me put it this way, I, I, like, I like to think that God is real. I don't believe in God because the idea that an omniscient, loving being would judge me who is mortal and ignorant based on a few years' experience, I find to be rather a cruel thought. All the power that God has, he, she, it has given to me. So we're definitely one. Uh, I, hope, I hope there's, there's something else out there. It'd be, it'd be fun to experience Either that or we're all just evolved apes. Um, I was raised atheist. I don't believe in a higher power. But I also don't claim to know everything about the world. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if there is one. I just pretend, I guess, and hope that there's something else out there. So is there a God? You could talk to people that will say that they believe there is, and you could talk to people that will say that they believe there's not. And if most people are honest, they'll say that, that they wrestle with that, and sometimes maybe they think there is, sometimes maybe they think they're not, or, or like that, that last woman there in the video, that, that they just kind of hope there is, but they don't know. You know, I did a little research this week. I went to this uh, one website where a lot of really smart people hang out and you ask questions and then they, they kind of jump in and try to figure the answer to those questions at. And I found this question, what percent of all knowledge is known? In other words, of all the things possible to learn about our universe, what percent of it do we know now? Think about that for a second. What, what do you think they came up with? Well, they did a lot of math that I didn't understand and they came up with this. They said, that's what percent of what is possible to know about this universe is actually known. And then the next question was, well, how about me as an individual, or you as an individual? How much of what is known does any one individual know? And again, they did some math and some figuring. This is what they came up with. They said, yeah, that percent of what is known. So, so, so think about it. According to them, and I don't know whether those numbers are right, of course, uh, but according to them, only a tiny fraction of what is possible to know about our universe is known by human beings, and the average human being only knows a tiny fraction of what all human beings know. So with that all in mind, my question would be, can you really be certain about anything? I was golfing a few years ago in Scotland with uh, some friends uh, from here at Trinity, and, and one of the guys that I'm friends with here at Trinity, a guy named Tom, uh, uh, Tom's a good golfer, and um, we were on this one hole, and he turns to his caddy, and his caddy handed him a seven iron, and Tom looked, and he didn't think that was right, so he looked at his caddy, and he said, seven iron, are, are you certain? And his caddy said, Tommy, I've only been certain about one thing in my life. When I was 13 years old, I kissed a girl for the first time, and I was certain I was going to do it again. 
But, but, but the question is, can you really be certain about anything? You see, the reason I ask you that today is because there are a lot of people that would say, I am absolutely 100% certain there's a God, I just can't prove it to you. But on the other side of the issue, there are people that say, I am 100% certain that there isn't a God. But if they're honest, they'll say, I just can't prove it to you. You see, no matter how badly you want either one of those to be true, there is no absolute certain definitive evidence that I can give you to prove the existence of God. And by the same token, there is no absolute certain evidence that anyone could give you to prove that the fact that God doesn't exist. But here's what I believe. I do believe, at least for me, that a preponderance of the evidence does suggest that it's more likely than not that God exists. And this morning, I'd like to share that evidence with you. Now, if you're here today and you believe in God, then great. Then maybe this will be a chance uh, for you to become more firm in what it is you believe. Or maybe even better yet, this will give you uh, some ideas to share with people that you know that may be struggling with this idea as to whether God exists or not. But if you're here today and you don't believe God exists, I want to make sure you understand something. I'm not trying to argue you into believing in God. Honestly, I don't think that's possible. I've never had a conversation with somebody and they finally went, all right, I believe in God. There, are you happy now? Never had that happen. But if, but if you're here today and you don't believe in God, I, I'd like to share with you why I do the, the evidence that to me is compelling. And I, and I hope that you'll at least have an open mind and listen. So I want to spend the rest of my time with you talking about six arguments for the existence of God. Six arguments that I believe are, are, are pretty compelling and some of them resonate with me better than others and, and others may resonate with you than the ones that resonate well with me. But again, I think these are six reasons that suggest it is more likely than not that God exists. And the first one is what I would call the moral argument. Uh, this is an argument, by the way, that C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, starts with uh, when it comes to the existence of God. This is the argument that a very, very intelligent man, Francis Collins, he's the guy that helped us decode the human genome. He was raised as an atheist, and he said later it was this argument that got him to question that idea about whether God existed and got him starting to think that maybe he had been wrong all those years that, that God actually existed. The moral argument goes like this. It is a fact that Human beings all throughout history in all different societies all have certain things that they believe are true and good and right and certain things that they believe are wrong and, and evil and bad. And the question is, if that is indeed true, and, and again, it is, that, that there's this kind of common moral code that it seems all human beings of all societies have, if that's true, where did that come from? You see, think about it. Every society that's ever existed on this earth has believed certain things are wrong. Like, for example, that, that abuse of a child, wrong. Every society recognizes that. Or taking something that belongs to someone else and, and pretending like it's your own and taking credit for it or making it your own. Every society on earth has believed there's something wrong about that. So where did that come from? Because, you see, if human beings just kind of sprung into existence by chance... 
And if different societies just kind of formed, isolated from each other by chance, you would expect that they would have developed different ideas about what was right or wrong. But, but overwhelmingly, there are certain things that everyone just knows is right and everyone just knows is wrong. So the argument goes like this. If, if we didn't figure that out, if, that, if, if that's just kind of built into what it means to be a human being, someone had to build it in there. Someone had to make that decision about right and wrong and kind of hard-coded into how we live, and that someone is God. The Bible says it this way. It says, people demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. We have this thing built inside of us. And by the way, we can silence it. We can ignore it. There are certain human beings, rare cases of human beings, where it seems like that conscience doesn't exist at all. They've silenced it so much. But the reality is we all know what's right and wrong. And if there isn't a God, where did that come from? Here's a, a second argument. Uh, this one is often, often called the ontological argument. And the ontological argument goes like this. Why do all human beings search for something bigger than they are? It's really true, isn't it, that, that all human beings are, are kind of on this search and, and they, they, they love being a part of something bigger than they are. They love connecting with, with things that are bigger than they are. I heard one person say uh, even that, I mean, think about it, at the zoo, what's the most popular animals? It's the giraffes and the, and the, and the elephants and stuff like that. Or, um, or, or, or think about it this way, why is it that some people just love being downtown among the big, tall buildings and things like that? For me, it's I love astronomy. I love just sitting out uh, underneath a big, dark sky at night with a telescope and looking at stuff that's just vast, uh, amazing, and, and, and to me, that connects me with something bigger than I am. Uh, a famous math mathematician, a guy by the name of Blaise Pascal, put it this way. He said he believed that there was a God-sized hole built into every human being's heart. And, and, and we might try to fill that hole with all kinds of different things, but the only thing that really fills that hole, the only thing that gives us a sense that we finally have connected with that thing we're searching for is a connection with our God. Again, the Bible puts it this way. God said uh, to the prophet Jeremiah, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. We're all searching for something, and that something is God. Here's a, a third argument. Uh, it's called the aesthetic argument. That's a, a painting. It's one of my favorites. It's by Van Gogh. It's called Starry Night. Now, now maybe that painting doesn't do much for you, but, but, but some other painting will. Did you ever experience this where you're looking at a, a, a painting, a piece of art, or you're reading a poem, or, or maybe it's not something human created. Maybe it's just a, a gorgeous sunset, and you just feel this sense of longing, this kind of deep conviction that there's something more to life than we recognize every day? Again, the Christian author C.S. Lewis, um, who by the way, when he was very young, decided there wasn't a God and spent much of his life um, into adulthood believing that there was no God, and, and then later in life recanted that and, 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 and came to the point where he not only believed there was a God, but he became this incredible apologist for the existence of God. But Lewis said it was this argument, it was this aesthetic argument that changed him. He said he remembered times when he was younger when he was reading a poem and all of a sudden he was just moved to tears and he couldn't figure out why. Why was it that that poem had touched him so deeply? He 
remembers another time that he was visiting some relatives and he went out into their garden in the backyard and, and, and he said it, it, the garden was just so beautiful. Again, something, it, it touched him deep inside, something moved deep inside him and he, and he couldn't explain that. For Lewis, that was one of the best evidences for the existence of God. This idea that, that underneath this universe around us is a God who creates beauty and love and life. And when we experience that in our lives, it connects with something in us that needs to be connected to that creator. Again, the Bible talks about this. In Romans, Paul said this. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. The fact is, if we're open to it, in the beauty and in the depth of meaning in the universe around us, we connect with God. Here's another argument. This is often called the cosmological, or I call it the scientific argument. The, the fact is, a lot of people believe that science and faith are opposites. But, but the reality is, the more scientists learn about this universe, the more it points to the existence of God. Let me give you a few examples. You know, for many, many years, scientists believed that the universe was eternal. It had just always been and always would be. But then a group of cosmologists started to say no. No, there's evidence that there was a time when the universe didn't exist and, th and that the universe sprang into being in just a few moments in this thing that they started calling the Big Bang. And by the way, when scientists first started saying that, atheists hated it because there was something very comforting for an atheist to believe that the universe had just always been here. Then they didn't have to explain how it began. But now all of a sudden, scientists were saying no, that there was a time when the universe wasn't and now there was a, a moment when it came into being and atheists had to explain how that happened. And, and the fact is, if there is this big bang, if there is this moment when the universe springs into being, the question is, why did that happen? How did that happen? Who made that happen? There's a book out there, by the way, called The First Three Minutes. It's the cosmologist's um, uh, latest explanation of what the first three minutes of this universe looked like. And if you read that and you compare it to the account in Genesis, it's amazing how many similarities there are. Or there's this other uh, science, uh, fact of science that is pointed to God, and that's this idea that we live in a finely tuned universe. In other words, what, what scientists have come to learn is there are literally hundreds of, of, of constants in the universe, and if any one of those constants was different, life would not be possible in our universe. Let me give you a couple examples. The sun is basically made up of hydrogen fused into helium. That's what creates the energy coming from our sun, atomic fusion, hydrogen into helium. And the ratio, the speed at which that happens is, is, a, is a constant. It stays the same always. And the interesting thing is, if, if it happened just a little bit faster, the sun would have burned out almost instantly. And if it happened just a little bit slower, the sun wouldn't produce enough energy for life. But it happens at just the right amount for life to be possible. And that's not just here in our solar system, but in solar systems spread all over the universe. Here, let me give you another example. There's a relationship between the strength of gravity and the electromagnetic force. And if that ratio wasn't exactly right, the universe would either expand so quickly that life wouldn't be possible, or it would collapse back in on itself and life wouldn't be possible. Folks, there are literally hundreds of these constants that scientists have discovered. 
And what they found is every single one of them is exactly right for life. And if any one of them wasn't, it wouldn't be that, oh, okay, well, that one's a little off, so we'll fix this one over here and it'll be okay. The reality is they're all independent. If any one of them wasn't right, life would not be possible in our universe. So scientists that don't believe in God say this. Well, it must just be that there are millions of different universes, and we're in the one that's tuned right for life. But by the way, those millions of different universes, by definition, are unobservable. We can't prove that they exist. We just have to take it by faith. Now, I don't know about you, but, but for me, what is more logical? That there are literally an infinite number of universes, and we're in the one that's tuned right for life, or that there is a universe, and somebody tuned it. I was thinking about this the other day. Imagine I picked up a guitar and it was just perfectly tuned. That's only six strings, not hundreds. I'd assume somebody tuned it, right? I wouldn't go, well, there must be an infinite number of guitars in the universe, and I happen to have the one <laughs> that is tuned right. Or, or one just one last thing that science has taught us that, again, for me, points to the existence of God. But scientists used to believe that there were very simple forms of life and very complex forms of life. So you had simple, tiny, one-celled organisms, and you had incredibly complex organisms like you and me, human beings. And, and so they believed, and I think this is a natural thing to believe, that, that simple organisms had slowly over time just developed more complexity until we came along. But here's what they've discovered. You know those simple little single-celled life forms? They're incredibly complex. In fact, the, the tiniest, simplest, single-celled organism is just as complicated as your body is. They call this irreducible complexity, this idea that, that all life is incredibly complex, and it didn't start simple and get more complex. It just was complex from the very beginning. And again, to me, that points to the existence of God. I love these words in the Bible. Job and his friends have been arguing about God. And some big questions about God. Some of the questions we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks, by the way. And finally, after chapter after chapter, these guys arguing about God, God shows up. And he looks at Job and he goes, Job, seriously? You're trying to tell me how stuff works? And then he says this, where were you when I made the earth's foundation, when I marked off how big it should be? Literally, it says there, when I measured it out. All the angels shouted with joy. Folks, the more we learn about science, the more it points to a designer, to a creator. The fifth argument that for me is very compelling about the existence of God is what I call the biblical argument. I believe in God because the Bible says there's a God. And you're probably going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That is a circular argument, Mark. You're saying the Bible is God's word, and the Bible says there's a God, and so you believe there's a God because the Bible says, you know, it's kind of like, wait a minute. But that's not what I'm saying at all. Pretend for a moment that the Bible is not the word of God, okay? That, that the Bible is simply a collection of ancient writings. Now, if you study ancient literature, what you find is it's very hard to prove anything from ancient literature because there are so few copies, and a lot of the copies disagree with each other. Like, for example, uh, Plato's uh, Republic. We only have a few copies of it, and, and they don't agree very well. It's hard to know exactly what Plato wrote. 
Or, or you look at books by people like Krishna or Lao Tzu in all different societies, ancient literature, we just don't have a lot of existing copies except when it comes to the Bible. The fact is, of all the ancient literature we have, the Bible is the one that we have the most copies, and by the way, by the most different authors, over 66 different books in the Bible, all of which we have literally hundreds and hundreds of copies of, all which agree to each other, with each other at an amazing level of consistency. If you just judge the Bible by ancient literature standards, it is incredibly well-attested and reliable. And it says there's a God. And for me, that's compelling. It's compelling that this, this, this incredibly well-attested group of ancient writings starts with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But all that together, for me, the last reason is probably the most compelling reason of all, and that's my own personal experience. Now you go, well, wait a minute, that's really subjective, Mark, your personal experience. That's true, but you can't argue with it, right? Because <laughs> my personal experience, and maybe yours as well. I could tell you that there have been a few times in my life when I have been just so overwhelmed by the sense of God's presence in my life that even if all these other arguments weren't there, it'd be hard for me to ever say that there wasn't a God. I remember one of the first times when I was first starting to get into this, uh, this idea of astronomy, I was sitting out in my side yard with a new pair of binoculars my parents had given me, and I was looking at the night sky, and I was just overwhelmed by this understanding that there was something so much bigger than me in this universe, and I just felt God's presence in that moment in a dramatic way. I remember another time in my life, I was kind of questioning, trying to figure out how to put science and faith together. And, and I was struggling. I didn't know some of the arguments I had shared with you before. And, and I was kind of trying to figure out how that all worked together. And, and over the course of a week, by coincidence, the same Bible verse came into my life again and again and again. And finally, I was just like, whoa, God's trying to tell me something. Or the time our son was born. And, uh, and he was, uh, the doctor said, not expected to live through the night. He was incredibly ill. And, uh, and my wife had just had uh, some major surgery so he could be born. And so, you know, they had her sedated. She's out, and she's uh, sound asleep, and, and he's down in the neonatal intensive care. And I was kind of going back and forth between those two places. Every time I'd go check on her, I'd come not know if our son was going to be alive when I got back. And it was on one of those trips that I was in the hallway. It was about two in the morning, and I was kind of all alone, and, and I was just kind of overcome with despair. And I remember just leaning up against the wall and just in tears, just sobbing. And I prayed, and all of a sudden, I felt God's presence like I had never felt it before. And I just had this incredible feeling of peace and of hope and I just knew everything was going to be okay. I didn't just make that up. I experienced God's presence in a powerful way. And that's why no one can ever tell me that there isn't a God. Looks, in fact, when you add all this up, uh, all this evidence, and there's, there's more, when, when you look at it, it just says to me overwhelmingly that that. that it is much more likely than not that God exists. And in fact, not only does God exist, 
But I believe that that evidence shows that God is powerful. If he can create this universe, think about what kind of powerful God he is. And if he got to decide what is good and what is evil, that must mean at his heart, at his essence, he is good. And my personal experience of him tells me not only is he good, but he loves us, and in fact, he loves me. Now, I can't prove any of that, but I believe it. And I know that that saying those things prompts some new questions. And we're gonna be looking at five more questions over these next five weeks that, that, that believing that is true prompts. But today, what I want you to wrestle with is this idea that there is a God, and in fact, the evidence of God is exactly the way it should be. Again, back to Blaise Pascal, that famous mathematician, this is what he said. He said, God has given sufficient, or God has given evidence of himself which is sufficiently clear for those with an open mind and an open heart, but sufficiently vague so as to not compel those who do not wish to seek him. In other words, Pascal said that, that God has given us just enough evidence that if you want to believe in him, the evidence is there. But by the same token, he has not given us so much evidence that you have no choice but to believe in him because God does not want to force belief in him on, on anyone. You have a choice. He goes on to say, there's enough light for those who see, to see, who desire to see, and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. Pascal was just talking about what Paul talked about in the book of Acts when he said, from one man he, talking about God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Here's what I pray. I pray that if you've already found God, again, this morning was just a chance for you to be reaffirmed in what it is you believe. And again, maybe to be better prepared the next time you have a chance to talk with someone who's seeking. But my prayer is also that if you are here today and you are seeking the answer to this question, if you, if you don't know whether you believe in God, maybe you're like that young lady in the video and, and you want it to be true, so you kind of pretend it is, but you don't really know, my prayer would be that, that you would reach out to God because his promise is he is not far away from you. And I guarantee if you search for him, you will find him. He will reveal himself to you. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.